Good morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, even as we noted last week, the uh, worldwide day of prayer for the persecuted church, we recognize, Father, that we have had it pretty good here. We also understand that with the gospel comes suffering. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us, that you would prepare us for the day when suffering comes to us, should it come. Let us not shrink back from it. Let us live out the gospel in such a way that people see that it is our great treasure and that it exceeds anything that anyone could offer us or do to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider the Apostle Paul here this morning, as as he suffered for Christ's sake, that we would understand how this speaks to us and prepares us as well, that we might be faithful to the gospel and that you might receive the glory that is your due. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of serving um, on a short-term mission trip in Africa where I was able to train some local pastors. And um, after I got done with one of my sessions, I had people break into small groups where I had prepared some questions for them to interact with. And one of the questions that, that I raised was, Name some of the, uh, the people, the, the references that, that have made the greatest impact on your ministry. Uh, what, what people have, have impacted your ministry most significantly? And in my small group at my table, the name I heard most was Joel Osteen. Got a slide here of Joel. You probably are are familiar with him. He says this, I don't really know what the prosperity gospel is. The way I define it is that I believe God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, and in your career. So I do, if if that is the prosperity gospel, then I, I do believe that. That was the person who had made the biggest impact on these African pastors. They they don't have good libraries with good reference works, good theological works there. They have radio and they have TV, and he's on both. And so they take what they hear from him, they incorporate that into their messages, and that's what they preach. Prosperity preaching suggests that God wants you healthy and wealthy and that those who suffer must be outside of the will of God. And the problem with that kind of preaching is the Bible. Read the Bible and you'll you'll see that that's, that's baloney. 
All you have to do is look at the life of Paul to know that the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. And in today's passage, we're going to see the Apostle Paul interacting with Timothy over his situation. He's in prison in Rome, likely the Mamertine prison, which is pretty much a dungeon. He's been forsaken by fair-weather followers. He is awaiting his execution. And in this passage, Paul will make clear to Timothy that suffering is not the mark of God's disfavor. It's part of following Christ. And if you want the sermon in a sentence, that's it. Suffering is not the mark of God's disfavor. It is part of following Christ. And Paul will give Timothy here two imperatives that tell us a lot about how we can deal with suffering when it comes to us. And we find those two imperatives in verse 8. Don't be ashamed and share in suffering. Those two. Don't be ashamed and share in suffering. So let's take a look at them and unpack them a little bit. First imperative in verse 8, don't be ashamed. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed. This word ashamed shows up three times in this passage, verses 8 to 18. Here in verse 8, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of two things, the testimony, the gospel witness, and the guy in the dungeon. Those two. In verse 12, Paul reflects on his own situation and says, I'm not ashamed. And then in verse 16, Paul points to a faithful brother, Ones- uh, Ones- <laughs> I was I was kidding Steve this morning before this. I gave him a really bad pronunciation of this, and, uh, and now I've thrown myself off. Uh, <laughs> Onesiphorus. He points to this faithful brother, Onesiphorus, who wasn't ashamed of Paul. Three times in this brief passage, Paul speaks about being ashamed or not being ashamed. And you'll notice that verse 8 begins with, therefore. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And when you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself what? You need to ask yourself what it's there for, right? And, and what this therefore is there for is verses 1 through 7 that we looked at last week, where Paul talked about handing the baton to Timothy. You and I have both responded to the call of Christ, he says. That you and I are both running the same race. You and I are, are in this race together, running a, a leg of the relay, each of us, and I am in the process of handing you the baton, Timothy. And so I'm going to tell you a couple of things. First, don't be ashamed. And then second, share in suffering. Don't be ashamed of the testimony. The word is marturion. Uh, we get our word martyr from that. A martyr is, is essentially a witness to Christ. 
And, and Paul says, don't be ashamed of the witness of Christ. Don't be ashamed to share the gospel of Christ. Don't be ashamed to share your faith. It's similar to the reading we saw this morning in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. And then Paul says, don't be ashamed of me either. He refers to himself, notice this, as Christ's prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. I am Christ's prisoner. I am not Nero's prisoner. I am in here not because of Nero. I am in here because of Christ. And God has me here for a purpose. Last week... Paul introduced himself at the start of this letter as an apostle by the will of God. He didn't really need to say that for Timothy's sake. Timothy knew who he was. They'd traveled together for 20 years. He said it for the sake of the church at Ephesus that this letter would be shared with, and he shared it for our sake as well. He establishes his credentials there as an apostle, and he is an apostle by the will of God. But Paul... uh, went beyond that because he understood that what he was and where he was was also by the will of God. He was in prison by the will of God. Does that that sound strange? In our study in 1 Timothy, uh, I pointed out the difference between two aspects of God's will. I talked about his moral will and I talked about his providential will, those two aspects of his will. We see his moral will reflected in the pages of scripture where he tells us what he wants us to do. He desires that we live godly, upright lives, that we honor our father and mother, that we tell the truth. These these are aspects of his moral will, what he wants for our lives. We see it in the pages of Scripture. His providential will, on the other hand, we see in the pages of history. We don't fully know it until it has come to pass. It's this providential will that Paul recognizes called him to be an apostle. And it's also God's providential will that he would end up in prison in Rome. And Paul can accept that as coming from his loving heavenly father. And he can continue to live out God's moral will in the context of where he has been placed now by God's providential will. Now we might ask ourselves, what possible purpose might God have in putting Paul in a place like that? We can't fully know, and we won't fully know until we're face-to-face with the Savior. But something really interesting happened in Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Now, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. Uh, You know, that long travel there with the shipwreck and all the rest, and he finally ends up in Rome, and then the last couple verses of Acts 28 says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That was his first 
imprisonment in Rome. He was basically under house arrest there. It was there that he wrote the prison epistles, uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, those wonderful letters he wrote under house arrest during his first imprisonment in Rome, about A.D. 60, going to A.D. 62 or so. He was then released, and then after a couple of years of freedom, re-arrested and brought back to Rome and tried and sentenced to die and was put then in the Mamertine prison where we find him writing 2 Timothy. But something interesting happened during that first imprisonment in Rome. I had Steve read uh, from Philippians chapter 1 briefly. And uh, in Philippians chapter 1, we find Paul's confidence that he is there for a purpose in this first imprisonment where he wrote Philippians. He says, "I, I want you to know, brothers, starting at verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel as, um, so that it has been become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, God is doing amazing things through his very imprisonment. And if you flip to the end of Philippians, the last couple of verses are, are absolutely amazing. Uh, Paul says at the very end of Philippians, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Saints in Caesar's household. Can you believe it? Isn't that amazing? As a result of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, the gospel has penetrated the very household of Caesar. Amazing what God can accomplish. So Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony, the witness of Christ, and don't be ashamed of the guy in the dungeon. That is imperative number one. Imperative number two is this, share in suffering. Share in suffering. We can suffer without shame when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, sometimes we suffer for our own foolishness, right? Happens to us. Like the the guy who smoked three packs a day and blamed God for giving him lung cancer. You know, it it can be our own foolishness that causes us to suffer. But Paul says, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We're blessed when we suffer on Christ's account, not on the account of our own foolishness. And Paul invites Timothy to do more than not be ashamed of him. He invites Timothy to share with him in suffering for the sake of Christ. Don't be ashamed of me. Join me, he says. And we share in suffering by the power of God. 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Somehow, in God's strange economy, he doesn't use his power to get us out of suffering, but to get us through it. He doesn't make it so that we avoid suffering, but so that we can be triumphant over suffering. We are reminded that suffering is temporary and joy is eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 it says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I like the way the NIV puts it. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Paul can call these sufferings light and momentary because he knows what is weighty and eternal. He can call them light because he understands glory. The Hebrew word for glory is also the Hebrew word for weight. Glory is weighty. It is substantial. Suffering is, is light, like dust on the scales in comparison. But we know what is weighty. It is the glory of God. And he can call these things momentary, because he knows what is eternal. It's not that they only last five minutes, 10 minutes, or you know, two weeks even, but it's only a lifetime. And then eternity of, of joy and glory. It's amazing. In verse 9, it says, he speaks about this gospel that we suffer for by the power of God, God who saved us and who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul, in verse 9, expands the focus from Timothy to all believers. He's just invited Timothy to share in his suffering. Now he makes it clear that this is not just for Timothy, it's for all of us. It's, uh, he says God saved us, called us to a holy calling. And so it includes us all. In Philippians chapter 1, that was read earlier, Paul says, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us to believe in Christ. That's, that's a wonderful privilege, but it's also been granted to us to suffer for his sake. Paul says in verse 9, we have been saved. He saved us from sin. He says in verse 9 too that we have been called. Uh, we have been called to a holy calling. That is a holy life. So we've been saved from sin. We've been called to holiness. Notice he's talking about us. He's including Timothy and all other believers with himself as part of his invitation to share in suffering for the gospel. And notice also that it's not our works 
that included us in salvation, but it's God's purpose and grace that did. Not because of our works, he says in verse 9, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, it was God's purpose to include us in salvation by grace, not by our works. And when did God do this? God gave grace before the ages began. Let me ask you, what were you doing then? Were you working hard before the ages began for your salvation? No, the grace was given before you were even created. And God and Paul tells us in, in verse 10 that that purpose and grace that God possessed before the ages began has now shown up. It's been manifested in Christ. Look at verse 10. Which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What happened when Jesus came on the scene? Two things happened, according to verse 10. First, he abolished death. That doesn't mean he got rid of it. Not yet. People still die. Death is still the final enemy that will be destroyed when Jesus comes back. But that day has not yet come. So what's it mean that he abolished death? Other versions say he destroyed death or he broke the power of death. That same word for abolished is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter, in verse 11. When Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. That's that word. I put those things behind me. Uh, that's that word abolished. And so death has been put, in a sense, behind us. Uh, we're, we're out ahead of it now. In Christ, death's power has been broken. So in verse 10, when Jesus came on the scene, he abolished death. And then the second thing he did was he brought life and immortality to light. Now, in the Old Testament, we, we get occasional flashes of life beyond this life. But here in Christ, it has, has been brought fully to light. Think of some of those flashes that we get in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where it says that God put eternity in our hearts. There is this God-shaped void in us that only he can fill. And so we have this longing for something more than what we see around us because he's placed eternity in our hearts. Or in Job chapter 19, when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. It's one of those flashes of immortality that we see in the Old Testament but in Christ, life and immortality have been brought into the spotlight. It's all about finding life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, And you were dead 
That's our natural state. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he did those things, verse 10 says, through the gospel. This gospel that we are not to be ashamed of. Verse 11 says that Paul was made a preacher of that gospel, an apostle of that gospel, a teacher of that gospel. It's a summary of Paul's ministry in those three roles. And he reminds us that it's because of, not in spite of, his faithfulness to those three roles that he is suffering now. For Christ. So he's God's prisoner, not Nero's. And he's there because he's been faithful, not because he hasn't. So don't be ashamed of him. Instead, join him in suffering for the gospel. Paul shares in verse 12 the secret for how he can endure his sufferings without shame. Look at verse 12. He's talking in verse 11 about being appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And he says, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's not that Paul is some sort of spiritual superman. That's not how he endures his sufferings. He's, in fact, very transparent about his life here in 2 Timothy. Uh, He says in verse 15, all of Asia has turned away from me. He mentions a couple of guys who really hurt him when they betrayed him. So he's not some spiritual superman, but he can endure his suffering because he knows Christ. It's not what he knows, but who he knows. He knows Christ, verse 12, and Christ is able. Christ entrusted this sacred deposit, this gospel message to Paul. And Christ will guard it until the day of his return. That's verse 12. Now, I'm going to just jump over verse 13 for a minute and come back to it. Because verse 12 and verse 14 tie together in a really important way. Both of them talk about guarding what's been entrusted. Again, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Jump down to verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So in verse 12, Paul says that Christ is able to guard what was entrusted to Paul. 
And in verse 14, Paul encourages Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him. And I think these two verses together point out something that the New Testament affirms in a number of places. And that is that God is sovereign and we are responsible. Those two truths are both affirmed in the New Testament. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Let me give you a couple of places where those two just show up together. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts 2, verse 23, uh, we find Peter uh, speaking to this crowd at, at Pentecost, and he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see those two truths there? God is sovereign, we are responsible. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What's that? That's God's sovereignty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's our responsibility. God is sovereign. Jesus died according to his eternal plan, and you are responsible for killing him. How about that? Or a couple chapters later, chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the believers are in prayer. They have just quoted in prayer Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and, and, and uh, people's plot in vain and how God mocks them with his laughter. But then he says this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they are responsible, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, these guys, they're guilty. They are responsible for what they did because they did what God had decided would happen. God is sovereign. We are responsible moral agents. And so here in 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul is trusting Christ to guard what's been entrusted to him, though he has been giving it his all, and now he's approaching the very end of his course that he has run faithfully. But the emphasis in verse 12 is God's sovereignty. Christ will guard what was entrusted to Paul. And in verse 14, Paul is encouraging Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him through the Holy Spirit. Timothy, guard it well because you are responsible for it. And the Holy Spirit will help you. He is sovereign, but you are responsible. These two truths come together. So we strive to be faithful with what's been entrusted to us, and we rely on God without whom our striving would all be in vain. So share in suffering. Two imperatives, don't be ashamed, share in suffering. And then Paul says, here's how you can get on board. First in verse 13, he says, follow the pattern. Follow the pattern. Verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound works that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul has been giving Timothy the pattern all along. Now he says, you've been watching me, Timothy, for 20 years. 
listening to the message of faith and love in Christ. You know the message, you've seen and heard the pattern, now follow it. That pattern shows the sound words of the gospel, follow it. And then he says in verse 14, guard the good deposit. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's entrusted for a season. It's entrusted for the duration of your leg of this relay race. Guard it well and pass it along intact to the next generation of runners. Follow the pattern. Guard the good deposit. Suffering can be a consequence of foolishness. Suffering can also be a consequence of faithfulness. We don't look for suffering in our lives as some sort of mark of valor, but we do risk suffering when we are faithful to the gospel. Think of Onesiphorus, mentioned here in verses 16 to 18. Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Think about Onesiphorus. He says, it's interesting that it's Onesiphorus' household that Paul mentions in verse 16. This is the only place he ever does that. Paul asks for mercy for this man's household in the present tense in verse 16. And then in verse 18, he asks for mercy for him on the day of Christ that is coming. Likely, Onesiphorus had passed away by the time Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And so he asks a blessing on his family, his household. But he says that Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains, that he was willing to join him in suffering for the gospel. Verse 17 says that he searched earnestly until he found Paul in Rome. Think for just a minute about what that entailed. What would it mean for someone to come looking for a man who had been condemned to death for not bowing the knee to Caesar? Can you help me find my friend Paul? He's, he's been convicted. He's awaiting his execution. He's a friend of mine. I want to find him. Can you imagine the exposure that that gave to Onesiphorus in sight of the Roman authorities? Onesiphorus was willing to risk suffering for the sake of the gospel. Maybe that is what contributed to his early death. We won't know until we get to glory but he could step out and risk suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering is not the mark of God's disfavor. It's a part of following Christ. I think Onesiphorus could be counted among the fellowship of the unashamed. That phrase dates back about 100 years to a young pastor in Zimbabwe who was martyred for his faith in Christ. When some people were 
going through his belongings after his martyrdom, they found among his papers something that he wrote. And I'll quote it for you. He wrote this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My no road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Pray with me. Father, we recognize that suffering is a part of the Christian life not a mark of your disfavor. Let us be unashamed of your gospel. Let us be unashamed of what you have done for us and let us gladly proclaim it, gladly share it as long as you give us breath. And Father, should suffering come to our lives, I pray, that we would be found faithful. And I pray that uh, you would be glorified by the lives we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.